Welcome to the Reverberations podcast. This series is curated and hosted by me, Zara Ashad, and made possible with funding and support generously provided by the Design History Society UK. Reverberations as an initiative was originally proposed in late 2018 as an events program, a set of in-person conversations that would seek to address marginalization, underrepresentation, and erasure in the UK's cultural and creative sectors. This group of talks was partly driven by my own harmful experiences of the fields in which I professionally practice, specifically museums, academia, and design. While the podcast that you are currently listening to, a reincarnation of the aforementioned events program, was developed throughout 2020, a year defined by COVID-19, the murder of George Floyd, and the subsequent heightened energy of the important Black Lives Matter campaign, in addition to new surges in anti-Asian hate. As these happenings and more have been taking place around me, I have doubted the value of public discussion, querying how can we move beyond lip service and help to enact meaningful change. The exchanges that I have had mostly during lockdown with the brilliant group of individuals who feature in this series offer glimpses into the possibilities and imaginings of how such change might be achieved, such as through collectively creating new systems, building networks of care and empathy, and thinking more carefully about whose voices we choose to amplify. The works, ideas and approaches briefly encapsulated here have greatly informed my own thinking. I hope these recordings will be similarly useful for you. Organized around three key themes, institutions, divergent models, and decolonizing design and culture, season one of the podcast broadly focuses on history making, particularly in relation to design history and design studies. The conversations that feature implicitly reflect on how and where our histories have conventionally been told and who gets to tell them through considering the work and experiences of BIPOC peers and colleagues who have navigated, continue to navigate, and frequently resist institutional structures and frameworks in varying ways. Our next speaker is Samicha Upham, Senior Curator of Public Programs at Design Museum London and part of the Board of Trustees for the artist-run cooperative Qubit. Samitra was also appointed Curator of Programs for the 5th Istanbul Design Biennial, titled Empathy Revisited, Designs for More Than One, which took place between October 2020 and April 2021. So welcome to the Reverberations podcast, Samitra. Thank you. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. So I thought we could start off by talking a little bit about your role at the Design Museum, which, as far as I've understood it, you've been at for a little more than four years now. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I actually, I had a very specific question about your role as Senior Curator of Public Programs. And that question is in relation to how much you've been able to experiment in your role. And so I'm thinking about, for example, being able to introduce different models of program delivery and trying to work outside of conventional systems and approaches to museum work. So how have you been able to do that? Mm. That's a nice question. 
Well, yeah, like you said, I joined the museum just over four years ago now, um, as you say, as curator of public programmes, which was a new role for the museum back then. And, and the first non-exhibition focused curatorial role, curatorial public programme and ex educational positions have existed in contemporary art institutions for decades, but are kind of less common in design and architecture spaces. So this role really intrigued me. I must confess, I always feel like a bit of an imposter in the design world in many ways, as I came from the contemporary art world. And I guess my interest in my interest in curating really is born out of what the theorist Erik Rogoff called the educational turn, which which really kind of marks this shift in the early 2000s where curators began engaging in educational and pedagogical formats and, and motifs. And there was this kind of shifting emphasis of art away from its production and display and more towards the you know, like the mediation of ideas and the circulation of ideas. And I'm very much a kind of product of this school of thoughts. And, you know, prior to the Design Museum, I was working at the ICA as a curator, where this type of thinking was really embedded in the makeup of the organisation and its history. So that's a very long-winded way of saying that this role at the Design Museum interested me because it, I guess it represented a kind of willingness from a leading design institution to embrace new modes of engagement and, and that excited me. And as it was a new role, I, I've actually been really fortunate to have been given quite a lot of freedom and, and trust to develop quite a, a critical and, and self-reflexive programme that felt new. And that allowed the museum, I think, to expand its its notion of what curatorial practice is and who it serves. And these are motivators, I guess, for me as a curator. And so what interests me, I guess, more broadly about curating is its ability to design new formats and, and typologies. Uh, so, you know, going back to your original question, I'm interested in, in using curating to create access and opportunities for voices, for new narratives and ideas that have been overlooked or perhaps in some cases erased and I think this is if I can maybe come to define my work both at the museum but also outside of it and so and the museum has allowed me and given me the freedom to experiment in these ways and I enjoy working in unexpected spaces at the museum whether it be our vast atrium or the auditorium or or maybe in the cafe or, or the garden these are these are sites that have more of a civic agenda, let's say, and have a kind of greater connection to the public. Hmm. So you mentioned this idea of creating opportunities for other voices. Can we speak about that in a bit more detail? How have you been able to carve out spaces for urgent conversations, for example, around representation um, and intersectionality more broadly? It's certainly something that I aspire to do uh, and something that I see as somewhat of a duty for curators, let's say. Whether or not I always manage to achieve it, I don't know. You'll, you'll have to ask the museum's audience. I mean, just to kind of take a step back, I think it's tricky territory. You know, public programmes tend to be places where museums can ask difficult questions and have more of a kind of politically informed voice. They're spaces that institutions look to appear relevant or cutting edge in some cases, which can be quite challenging when these types of conversations aren't visible in other areas of the museum's work. And so, mm. you know, while I 
prioritize creating space for urgent conversations around, as you say, intersectionality. I'm always conscious of where these conversations sit within a broader institutional framework and, and what the legacy of this thinking and this work is. It's not enough to have a talk about issues of race in museums when, you know, the makeup of staff there is 90% white, you know, so we, we need mechanisms for change, of course. I see the public programme as integral, an integral space to create social change within cultural organisations. And I think that's what attracts me to public programming roles, you know, whether that be through asking urgent questions or profiling different voices to occupying different spaces or reaching new audiences. I mean, you know, arguably a successful public programme does all of those things. But it needs to work harmoniously with other areas of the programme to create meaningful change and and also for important stakeholders and gatekeepers to take notice. The programme that I run at the museum is pretty interdisciplinary, probably Mm. because of my background and my interests and my skill sets. Um, It seeks to really kind of draw upon knowledge and expertise across a range of perspectives, across age, race, gender, and ability. There are many incredible voices in architecture and design who are doing really urgent work fighting for greater equality and equity in our industry. I'm not a designer, like nor am I particularly embedded in the design industry. And so I can't always speak to or claim to understand the nuances of these perspectives, but I what I think I can try to do as a curator is to help shape narratives and, and build, I guess, social frameworks from which these voices and experiences can be heard. And, and that's what I try and do in the programme that I run at the museum through things like, for example, we run this, this project called Manifestos, Manifestos Architecture for a New Generation, mm-hmm. which has been running now for about three years I think we run it annually for London Festival of Architecture and each year we invite a small group of emerging voices in architecture and nominated to develop a manifesto that responds to the needs of the city and and its people and always it always produces such thought-provoking material and ideas that respond to you know things like precarious working conditions social discrimination and Well, last year's programme, which obviously happened amidst the height of the pandemic, in June, much of the work was responding to the repercussions of COVID-19 and and how these, how the the parameters that have spawned from the pandemic have presented urgent and complex spatial challenges for, for the city and more specifically for its young people. And so that's, I guess, an interesting or an interesting example of how I attempt to carve out space for these these types of discussions or issues. I mean, another, another program that I work on with colleagues but sits in my team now is Designers in Residence, which has been going for an, a long time. It's now in its 13th year, I think. Again, it's, it's a program that's focused on the work of early designers in the early stages of their career. And they spend a year with the museum developing a new body of work in response to a theme. The theme for this iteration of the programme was, was care, which we interestingly settled on way back in summer 2019 um, at a time when we felt that social inequality and climate uncertainty had reached a new high. But little did we know how prescient the theme would, would become. Um, <laughs> and uh, 
the outcome for this year, obviously the amazing designers who I've been working with, who include Abiola Onabule, Cynthia Bosa-Lucilu, Eni Kukutuamala and Joanna Mann, they've been carrying out their residencies from their homes over the last 10 months, developing research, developing conversations, thinking about new ways of working in this very unknown circumstance. And they produced this new digital exhibition and education space, which we call a showcase. Every year there's a physical exhibition, but obviously this year we have to kind of rethink things. And their work tackles super urgent questions from mental health provision in Black British communities to the importance of microbes and urban agriculture in our cities. Again, you know, my role within that is in carving out space so that these designers and their narratives and their questions can breathe and playing more of a kind of mediator role rather than trying to kind of design the thing itself I guess. Mm. Well on the on the subject of care that I think is a really nice segue into another question that I wanted to ask you about a different role that you've just finished up you're, well, yes, you're, so you're in the process of, of wrapping up the fifth Istanbul Design Biennial with your colleagues, Mariana Bestana and Billy Mervin and your team. Mm-hmm. And your event was titled Empathy Revisited, uh, Designs for More Than One. Can you speak more about uh, this approach, this idea of using empathy as a curatorial direction? Yes, yeah, so we are indeed nearly finishing up. I've had the pleasure of working with Mariana and Billy for nearly a year and a half now on the curation of the biennial, which opened last October. And as you say, we'll close at the end of this month. I mean, empathy is such an urgent theme for design to be addressing or or rather embracing as, as a strategy for change. When Mariana called me and invited me to join her curatorial team, she said, you know, I'm thinking of building a programme around this subject. And I instantly knew that it was something that I wanted to be a part of, not only because I think Mariana is brilliant, but because, but also because, you know, I, I thought this theme right now is, is so pressing. Uh, so the programme that we devised really takes empathy as, as a framework for, for decentering let's say so we wanted Mm. to we wanted to investigate the potential of this kind of emotion or condition for feeling one that is centered not in an individual body but in the kind of interstices between bodies and things and between selves and others and of course this is what we know of, of what we call empathy and is the reason why we felt it was such an intriguing and urgent lens from which we can not only view design, but view the world more broadly. Today, you know, I think we all understand empathy to be a way of connecting with other people, but empathy's original meaning was actually more about the transparency of feelings into objects and into the natural world. And so our, I guess our motivation or our intention for the biennial really was to take empathy back to its roots and to explore how design might equip us to kind of feel into territories or feel into other species, but of course also into uh, one another. Design is often seen as a, as a medium that's concerned or preoccupied with problem solving and empathy hasn't traditionally been considered as an obvious solution to some of the systemic issues that we face in this world 
And so with this biennial, we quite literally seek to kind of challenge that viewpoint and instead suggest and hopefully demonstrate that empathy should be a key design consideration if we are to kind of navigate challenging interpersonal relationships. So mm. That's our kind of, that was our curatorial direction, as you put it. Well, I mean, you've delivered such a rich programme, but some of the work and projects that have kind of entered my radar are concerned with, for example, using food as a means of mapping histories and presenting new perspectives. And you also have numerous works and projects that deal with identity, as well as displays and exhibitions and talks um, that focus on ecology and nature. Can you tell us a bit more about these seemingly divergent directions, but actually kind of all brought together under perhaps more and a more expanded definition of design? I'm glad you picked up on that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, food is <laughs> food is one of many tools that we've used to, as you say, map narratives and new perspectives. Um, we through the biennial, I guess we position food not just as sustenance, but as identity. And that's that's what interested us as curators, you know, with, with the stories around what we eat and how we obtain food and what they can reveal about history and relationships, both between humans, but also between humans and, and non-humans and between humans and the natural world. Food, as we know, is not just about agriculture it's about politics it's about ecologies it's about economies and um, it can reveal stories that help us understand ourselves but also how we relate to, to one another and to other species and it was this potential of food really that we as curators embraced as a mechanism from which we can build a framework for empathy and so I guess we we, we asked ourselves the question it, if we saw the world through the lens of food, what new perspectives might we gain? And so I guess we built a biennial that resembles the typology of a kitchen in many ways. In fact, I'm just, we're just in the process of editing our catalogue for the biennial, and it's something that I've written about in the book. We, we have these, these key strands, which I can tell you a little bit about. Yeah, please do. Uh, that make up the biennial and food plays a central role in all of them. We've got an online series titled The Critical Cooking Show, which was a collaboration with Eflux Architecture, which takes an ingredient or a recipe as a point of departure for exploring broader global, social, political, ecological issues. Each episode was led by a designer or an artist or a thinker and kind of plays on this idea of what a cooking show is and what it could be and looking kind of looking at the cooking show as, a, as an educational format. We have a set of research projects based in the Mediterranean Basin, which were presented at the Library of Land and Sea, which was this education space that opened in Istanbul in October to coincide with the launch. And it invited visitors to rethink the concept of the Mediterranean through interrogating our relationship with land and sea. And at the library, you could engage in and with a collection of research projects by designers and thinkers who, who are kind of actively rethinking territories through our relationship with soil and water in order to reveal hidden narratives and, and, and less visible 
networks of food production. And then another strand to flag that key strand to the program was, is, sorry, new civic rituals. I say is because we've, we've got some projects that have just launched this week. So it's very much a kind of iterative process and, and works continue to unravel and evolve and have done over the last uh, six months or so. So new civic rituals really is, is a strand that is spread across the city of Istanbul. They are interventions that rehearse new kinds of encounters and they're hosted by specific community groups and, and sites in the city. They include things like tools for communal cooking to gardens and, and playgrounds they all have a kind of restorative function and provide experiences for being together and for reconnecting and, and for caring for the city in, in unexpected ways so to bring it back to your your question about food or your point about food I guess we're not we weren't necessarily interested or concerned in in food itself on a kind of surface level but rather in the the discourse around it and in the context from which it emerge emerges and as you rightly pointed out you know we're, we're we position food as, as this as an expanded design tool for understanding how empathy is practiced and articulated in in different contexts i'm curious who did you envision to be the audience for many of these initiatives that you've pulled together it's mm, a good question. Well, I think it it changed. <laughs> it, it kind of shifted radically when we had to kind of reappraise the model of the biennial amidst a pandemic. But mm. first and foremost, our priority has always been Istanbul and and the local people um, who live there and who you know occupy the spaces that we have temporarily occupied through the biennial. Um, and so ideas around localism and legacy of these works and projects and their interest and engagement with local interests and, and ideas were always at the forefront of our concern. And the biennial that we've produced is small. <laughs> I mean, small, hopefully, you know, extensive and, and impactful on, on, on a larger scale, but we've commissioned between, I think it's around 40 practitioners, which is quite small in comparison to other biennials. It's a slow biennial, like I was mentioning. We have a small number of projects, but they, they unravel slowly over the course of six months, rather than having millions of projects and millions of artists and designers and having a compressed program that exists over the course of a month. And so our intention really behind that framework was for that framework to, to provide a kind of deeper level of engagement with people who live and occupy the city. Well, I do want to talk a little bit about, you know, shifting the model of the biennial. But before we do that, um, I just kind of want to come back to one of the key ideas that has underpinned the event um, and perhaps even your work uh, as a person <laughs> as an independent mm -hmm. practitioner more broadly and this is the idea of design from multiple perspectives for, for multiple bodies and that's kind of really captured I think in the subtitle for the biennial which is designs for more than one can you please unpack that a little bit yeah I guess it builds on a bit of what I was saying earlier. I mean, I guess if, if empathy is our theme or our lens, let's say, then designs for more than one is really our, 
proposition, if you like. <laughs> By that, we mean design for multiple bodies, for multiple dimensions, multiple perspectives. Um, we're really trying, we're interested in using the biennial as a mediator or a vehicle towards more than human politics and, and concerns. And designs for more than one, I guess, is as much as a statement as it is a question. Like, you know, what are what are the designs that take into consideration the interests and the well-being of the many inhabitants of this planet, not just the dominant ones, but also mm. what are the designs that kind of highlight the complex entanglements inherent in any design process. And these are the designs and the designers that we were drawn to through this biennial. I think what we've ended up with is a rostra of practitioners and thinkers whose work share a kind of sensitive and um, Mariano always calls it a kind of diplomatic approach to their work. They invite us to rethink ideas around localism, which is something we've just touched on, you know, whether it be at a microbial or a cosmic scale. And they encourage us to occupy a position that is fundamentally interdependent. And that speaks to this, this proposition of designs for more than one. Yeah, and I suppose maybe to articulate it in more explicit terms, looking at non-human actors has, uh, at least you know, how I've interpreted the programme, has been a key idea. Can you maybe give us some example? This is probably an, an impossible question, um, but maybe give examples of some projects or forms of programming that you think have done this in a particularly sensitive, poetic and kind of striking way. Yes. There's so many. I don't know what to. I don't know which ones to mention. One that springs, <laughs> one that springs to mind because it launched this week, um, oh, last week perhaps, was is a project called Microbial Fruits of Istanbul by Orkan Telhan and Eli, which mm-hmm. is a project. Well, they've they've designed a kiosk that tells the complex kind of histories of Istanbul's community gardens, which are known as Boston's, from the perspectives of microorganisms. And the installation produces these kind of what they're calling microbial fruits, which include a fermentation kit to make microbial fruit frozen bars made from fermented ingredients um, that allow audiences to engage and, and empathize with and learn about the heritage of the of urban agriculture in the city and the importance of microbes in restoring and protecting microbes in the city. So that's one example. Another lovely example is, again, building on the microbe theme, is a work by the Turkish architect and urban activist Aslihan Demirtas. She, for the Library of Land and Sea, designed a very beautiful urban, well, a body of research, really, that was kind of mapping agriculture in the city from where food is produced in the Bostons to, you know, where it's sold in supermarkets, where it gets shipped to, where it comes in from. Um, And she worked on a big research project that mapped food in the city more broadly with her students. And she produced a very beautiful piece, an installation that sat on the rooftop of the Library of Land and Sea called Earthable, which was somewhere between a kind of dining table and a garden. (laughs) 
And it was, you know, essentially it was, this, it was an outdoor table of soil where over the course, gradual course of a month, you know, seemingly it looked like a table of soil, but over the course of the month, you would slowly see life emerging and, and food suddenly started to grow in this site without human intervention, but just through, you know, the act of growing through the light and, and rain and, and yeah, what was a, a table full of soil became an urban garden in the city. And it was a very beautiful and poetic metaphor for, you know, the importance of non-human life. In, in cities. Oh, that does sound really lovely. I wish I had been able to see it in person. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we've spoken a little bit about the content, so your approaches to curating and the kinds of projects and work that had eventually been featured as part of the biennial. As you were explaining these projects, I was quite curious to know a bit more about how you selected the people whose work you eventually exhibited. How did you kind of go about inviting studios and academics and participants, generally speaking, to partake in the programme? It's a good question. Um, and it seems like a lifetime ago now, <laughs> but we, <laughs> I guess it was, I mean, you know, first and foremost, there were three of us and Mariana, Billy and I, we, we come from different walks of life. We have shared interests, but we, you know, we're from, well, geographically, you know, Billy, Billy's in Brighton now, moves between Brighton and London. I'm obviously based in London. Mariana's based in Portugal. And I think we all kind of came to this with our own interests and, and networks, which for sure played a role. We we had you know several we we had a lovely day of workshopping where we kind of all brought forward different thinkers and different ideas and different themes and different practitioners to discuss but what was i guess really important was to build the framework for the biennial and to set some kind of clear parameters and questions of you know what type of work resonates with this theme what's what the kind of criteria of for designers would be for a biennial of this nature. And that goes back to obviously the theme of empathy and, and of course to our to our kind of proposition of designs for more than one, who are the designers who are who are using, who are kind of creating tools and systems for rethinking relationships between human to human and, and, and humans and you know non-human entities, who are designers who are kind of uh, are thinking about emotions and building interpersonal relationships who are designers are kind of working in you know as we said more kind of sensitive and sometimes therapeutic ways to to reimagine a role a new role for design that's concerned with with feelings and social exchange these were the types of questions that interested us and I think you know it's fair to say that while we all exist have our foot in the design world we also the three of us also exist in other in other kind of cultural worlds as well including contemporary arts but also yeah our mm. architecture billy's a writer um and so we had quite an interdisciplinary team interdisciplinary team and that for sure played a role in the final rustra of participants that we involved which i'm sure you'll agree is is pretty um yeah interdisciplinary definitely yeah i think there's an amazing range of disciplines, but also backgrounds and various experiences and perspectives that I think are represented 
in the program, but I was also wondering about, you know, the limitations that we have as curators and as researchers and writers in relation to language, for example. So I'm thinking, I suppose I'm thinking, you know, from a very personal perspective, I am in the process of learning Korean and learning a bit more about South Korean, um, the South Korean context in relation to contemporary design practice. And of course, knowing the language enables you to access people and information in ways that otherwise it would be very difficult to. And so I suppose I'm trying to figure out how to word, how to kind of articulate my question to you, but in kind of recognizing these limitations that we do have, we kind of exclude work that might be done in other parts of the world that we might not necessarily be so familiar with. Mm. Um, And so how have you negotiated that and I mean you can speak from a more personal perspective if you think that's more representative yeah so how have you kind of negotiated those challenges yeah that's a lovely question well I think recognizing that that is a huge challenge in in our work let's say and particularly when working on a big international event like a biennial it's you know one of the kind of huge parameters that you're up against as curators in putting on an event like this. Specifically speaking to the biennial, I mean, I think there's a couple of ways in which we we attempted to address that. I mean, first of all, speaking specifically, you know, this is obviously the Istanbul Design Biennial. We very quickly appointed a curatorial, a young curators group who are based in Istanbul, a wonderful, group who's you know super articulate and very informed and really were invaluable in helping us form and shape this program to ensure that it kind of resonated with the interests of of local people in the city and they played a huge role in you know suggesting names of artists designers architects thinkers and also in in shaping the public program and so that's very important to note I think another thing to note is that we you know, the, the biennial obviously had to change shape quite drastically in the yeah. midst of all of this, in the midst of the pandemic. And we had initially put out an open call for projects and proposals when we had thought the biennial was going to take a very different shape. And so that was an international open call. And we had a very international with international applicants, you know, applying from all around the world. And that from those applications, we were able to to continue working with with those people who applied and to kind of reshape their projects in the new frame, with the new framework. And so I think the open call was fundamental in providing a democratic and more kind of internationally aware, I guess, approach. So, yeah, they're they're two important things to note. And then I think other than that, you know, drawing upon our international networks as individuals, also, you know, the biennial as a whole and ensuring that that we were speaking to peers and, you know, to to our peers across the globe to ensure that we 
were asking the right questions, that we were, you know, looking in the right places and these types of things. Yeah, no, of course. Um, I mean, I think it's a huge challenge. And as you say, it's something that we're constantly grappling with as curators and researchers. But, you know, as you were speaking, um, you know, you kind of mentioned this idea of the shape of the biennial kind of morphing and changing and this idea of developing new frameworks has been mentioned throughout the conversation. I thought that it could be a good way to kind of round up the discussion, reflecting on how the pandemic has prompted you and your team to rethink this standard model of the biennial. Can you share some of your thinking around this, how you've had to negotiate some of the challenges brought about by COVID-19 and how these restrictions may have actually presented opportunities to do something different? Yeah, I mean, you know, when the when the pandemic hit, we were faced with many challenges um, in having <laughs> yeah. to in having to rephrase the biennial model. I think it's safe to say, but yeah, as you rightly alluded to, I think it gave us an opportunity to refocus what questions and and what practices we were foregrounding, and you know, it became apparent to us that ideas around care and localism and coexistence as we've discussed that were always implicit in the biennial from the offset from our early discussions that they only gained agency during this period of social isolation Um, and these principles really became the backbone for what this biennial stands for and, and, and came to govern how it would operate. And the projects that we've ended up with all in their own way, I guess, encourage us to rethink practices of care and civility at this critical moment in time and propose ways of collectively building new systems and structures for reconnecting. Many of the projects, it's worth saying that many of the projects that we commissioned for the biennial will continue to grow and live on way past 2021. Mariana often describes the biennial as a biennial of new beginnings, which I think is really lovely. I think by that, she means that it's a biennial that consists of projects that leave a trace or a remain behind. We were never interested in producing a biennial that parachuted in, set up shop and then disappeared. This biennial was first and foremost as you know, I've stressed it was for the people of Istanbul and to provide a means of engaging with their city and their surroundings in new and unexpected ways and and was a collaboration with them. And our hope for this biennial was, yeah, I guess, to provide a seed from which ideas and conversations and relationships could grow with the intention and commitment to imagine and rehearse different futures, futures designed to prioritise interests that are often overlooked. And so I think, yeah, that was a quite a long-winded way of saying while the pandemic, of course, radically transformed the framework of this biennial, the ethos and I guess the intentions that we set out to achieve earlier on in 2019 have remained the same and if anything you know this pandemic has heightened of course heightened the questions and the urgency around the theme um, but provided a means from which we can 
we can grow, these projects can kind of continue to grow way past the biennial. And it's very much just a starting point. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how particularly, you know, the research projects which began in the biennial as the beginning of, of a research project, which will continue to live on, you know, way past our involvement. And, and the book that we're producing, um, the catalogue, which will be launched at the end of this month to coincide with our finale event, acts as a kind of record of the motivations and agendas behind all of those participants involved. I mean, I think the, the framework that you've established, at least from my point of view, has the potential to be so, so powerful, you know, from the idea of care and empathy to, I really like this idea of a biennial of new beginnings, and then also thinking about futures in the plural. I think it's a really nice framework. Um, and I look forward to kind of seeing how that gets carried on into the future. So I don't know if you've had any thoughts around how that could develop further. Mm. It's something that we we think a lot about and, and we're still in it. So it does <laughs> so it's difficult to kind of imagine the end, even though <laughs> yeah, of course. the end is <laughs> approaching. But I think you know the relationships that we've established will will continue to grow and you know, take the civic rituals program, for example, each one of those interventions or virtually virtually each one of those interventions has been paired, a designer or an architect or an artist has been kind of paired with a community group in the city who will kind of take ownership of that work when the biennial ends and that work will continue to live on and those relationships will continue to manifest. The research projects will continue to grow and we will continue to be involved and find ways in which, you know, individually as curators, even without the support of the biennial or with the support of the biennial, we will, you know, continue to keep an eye on them and, and help where we can to ensure they get as much visibility as they can. But, yeah, I mean, I think the legacy is is the imprint that it leaves on the city of Istanbul and and. Hopefully we will have, you know, played a very, very small role in introducing some new encounters or, or moments or tools or, or systems that can be of use to, to people in the city of Istanbul. And that's, yeah, I mean, I guess that's all we can hope for, really. <laughs> I think that's a really nice moment to end the conversation, actually looking to you know, continuing our networks and to building alternative ways of doing things, I think is a great note to end on. I just want to thank you, Sumitra, for your time this evening and for sharing your thoughts, your energy and for contributing to the podcast. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have enjoyed the episode, Please subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify or whatever platform it is that you use to access your podcasts. This will help other listeners to find us. With special thanks to Davinia Gregory, Ellie Michaela Young and Mega Rajguru for their continued support and guidance. Jenna Alsop for editing season one of the Reverberations podcast and Claire O'Mahony, chair of the UK Design History Society for championing this work.